Our reading this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. The preacher, having I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad. And of pleasure, What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The word of the Lord. I'm hoping that all of you who are still in this room are aware of what the scientific method is. Um, I figured it out somewhere in fourth or fifth grade, understanding all the parts of it. And when I say fourth and fifth grade, I don't mean when I was in fourth and fifth grade. I mean when my kids had to do science fair projects in fourth and fifth grade. I literally had no idea what it was until I went back as an adult trying to help my kids. And no wonder none of my science fair projects were very good. Um, I just built a robot, which was really a trash can on a remote-controlled car, and I didn't get a good grade. I don't know why. It was science, right? The scientific method involves a question that you're trying to answer. You propose a hypothesis based on some initial research. And then through testing and observation and experiment and collecting data, you draw conclusions and then you retest those. Solomon, the great king, went through an entire life science fair project. It was the quest to understand what life is about. We read this in verse 13 of chapter 1. I went to seek out and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Basically, what is life about? Does it have purpose? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And he set about his life observing it, trying to figure out by wisdom and observation the purpose of life. His conclusion, which he gives us right at the very beginning of his whole book of Ecclesiastes, is all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Other translations say meaningless. 
emptiness, nothing. It's like trying to grab hold of the wind with your bare hand. You cannot, by observation of just the life we live, determine that there's a meaning. That's what Solomon came to. But what did he do in order to kind of figure that out? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he starts off with his initial set of tests, which is really his lifelong test. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, I said. He set about to enjoy everything this life has to offer, every delight, everything that could be fun, every party, every experience, anything that a person can do, taste, touch, feel. He let himself go down those roads, trying to figure out, can I find the meaning of life in the best things this life has to offer? In verses 4 through 8 of Ecclesiastes, the book that's associated with him, we get what's referred to in other ancient writings as an ancient Near Eastern royal testament. The description of all the great things a king or a great person had built in order to kind of immortalize that person. Solomon writes it down himself, identifying all the things he had accomplished, all the things he had done. And if you were going to jump it to today's day and age, he had multiple homes, went to the most incredible vacation spots. He tasted the best wines, had, the, had dinner at the finest restaurants. There wasn't a thing he didn't get to enjoy. He had a personal trainer and a chef and a driver, all the things you're supposed to have if you're really rich. And he hung out with pop stars, with supermodels, with top athletes and other incredibly wealthy people. Private concerts were put on just for him. He lived the life that even the greatest in this day and age would hope to live. He sums up in not so humble fashion in verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me. Look, I'm number one on the Forbes list of richest people. What's it to you? Most of us can't imagine what that would be like to have so much wealth that whatever you could conceive of, whatever you can dream of, could be yours right away. You can get a hold of it just by cutting the check, by pulling out the card, by saying, this is what I want, and it's there. In verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desires, I did not keep from them. I kept no pleasure from myself. You want to summarize Solomon's life? success, incredible wealth, the richest man in the region, he spent and he enjoyed. And the question is, is this what life's all about? Now, most of us are smart enough to know that people don't really seek their meaning in lots of money. They don't really seek the purpose of life in lots of money. And we would say we certainly don't do that. We don't seek more and more wealth in order to find purpose and meaning. And yet, I think unthinkingly, the way we approach our own money, the way we view wealth, would suggest otherwise. That we are searching for something in how we approach and view our own money and wealth. We are a culture that is richer than any culture before en masse. We have such incredible freedom. 
and we are radical individuals, individualists. We are consumers who are performance-driven, success-oriented, heading towards, if you're performance-driven, success-oriented, more and more money, and therefore more and more things we can get a hold of, that we can taste, that we can buy. Craig Bartholomew, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, wrote, Consumerism is the dominant ideology of our age. The quest for pleasure through possessions and experience is how he's defining it. And the heroes of Western culture have multiple houses, accumulate phenomenal wealth, and are able to buy all the pleasures of life they desire. That's what our heroes have. Think about who the heroes of today are. It's Gates, Zuckerberg, Musk, it's Kim and Kanye, it's Beyonce and Jay-Z, it's people with acronymish names like AB and KD and Cardi B, which I think is short for like Cardigan Beatrice, but I might be wrong on that. Some of these people, we don't know why they're famous, but we know they're rich. Many of you will gather this afternoon to watch a bunch of commercials on TV that will be interspersed with a sporting event. (laughs) What you will find is that aside from just being funny and great storytelling, is that many of those commercials will feature incredibly rich and therefore famous people, or incredibly famous people who happen to also be very rich. And this is because advertisers are not just selling a product, they're selling a lifestyle. They're suggesting it's not just Pepsi tastes better than Coke, it's Pepsi is associated with these sorts of people. This type of beer, this type of car is associated with these people, the richer, the famous, the ones who have it all choose this. You want that lifestyle, you too must choose this. And as a result, money, consumerism, wealth has a hold on us and has a religious effect. Robert Wuthnow, in his book on materialism, wrote, we cannot fully appreciate the depths of materialism unless we understand how economic behavior supplies us with meaning, purpose, and a sense of sacred order. We cannot fully appreciate the depths of materialism unless we see that our view of money has a religious hold, a religious impact in our lives. Now look, we may not accumulate palaces or concubines the way that Solomon did, but we do use our wealth to try to get a hold of happiness or protect us from our greatest fears. The very reason people turn to religion And as a result, money can be a functional savior. It can become the focus of our heart's loves and trusts. It can become what the Old Testament called an idol, a false god. Money and wealth has a powerful psychological effect, and it is reinforced socially. We build up tolerance to money. It's much like addiction, right? If you're addicted to drugs, if you're a drug addict, if you're addicted to pornography, if you're addicted to food, you will find that in order to get the same high, you need more and more and more powerful versions of the same thing. You don't just settle for a little bit of pot, you now need it way more, way more powerful, way more often, and then even into the other things. 
money has the same power on our lives. We always need more and more to achieve the same effect, the same happiness, or staving off the same fears. Think about the story of many of your lives. Maybe not everybody in here, but many of your lives. You started off at some point in your young adulthood with not a lot of money. And as a result, you might have you know, eaten ramen every day. You drove a car that now you would not let your kids drive in. You lived with things that were much simpler because you couldn't afford anything else. And when you did get a luxury like a restaurant, it was an occasional thing. But as you grew in your you know, corporate direction and the way that your income grew, the way that your bank accounts stabilized a little bit, all of a sudden you become capable of eating in places you didn't before, of driving the sort of thing you didn't drive before. And what used to be negotiable, like staying at this type of hotel versus camping, becomes a necessity. Luxuries become necessities in our life as we grow more and more tolerant or intolerant to lesser and lesser things. When you gain more money, you need more money. What used to be negotiable is now longer is now a necessity in your life. And this gets reinforced socially because we find ourselves in socioeconomic circles. Every one of us does. And that shapes and patterns what we expect and what we think of as the norm. It's one of the challenges of being a kid in a place like Fairfax County. You assume certain things are the norm, and they are not. But parents, you live here, and you assume certain things are the norm, and they are not. We all do. Many of us have in our past a, a first apartment. Maybe it was one you lived in in college or just after high school, or an apartment or a house that was run down, dingy, in sort of a bad area, the sort of place you don't want to live in now. And then you moved on to another place, a nicer apartment, a bigger rental house, eventually maybe buying a house. And even that wasn't enough, you bought the next house, the bigger house, the better house, right? We all do it. But just think about the trajectory there. Where we were willing to live previously, we wouldn't live now. And on top of that, it ends up affecting who you're hanging out with. And who you're hanging out with reinforces what is normative, what is expected, what everyone does. It's because we are always, always, always comparing ourselves. And your standards keep changing based on who you're around. We don't compare ourselves to the world. We don't even compare ourselves here in Fairfax County to America. You will compare yourself, I do, to people in my neighborhood and in my immediate social circles. And as a result, everyone thinks they are middle class. But by definition, everyone can't be middle class. And if you live in Vienna or Fairfax, you probably aren't middle class, at least not economically, not compared to America, and certainly not compared to the world. 
Is money an idol for you? This is a question that if you're going to try to unpack it a little bit, you ask this, what do you spend money on easily, effortlessly? What do you just, you could throw money at and it's not a problem. It falls off of you when it comes to this. Is it your home? Is it shopping for clothes? Is it eating out, restaurants? Like, you're very frugal about, you're, you're still wearing the same coat that you've had for 10 years, but you love eating out. Vacations, you know, experiences. You don't buy stuff, you buy experiences. Tickets to the game, to the concert, to the show. What is it you'll spend money on? Because this is the sort of thing you should spend money on. Or do you spend money effortlessly on charity and generosity? Like you just can't cut enough checks. You can't find enough things to give money away to, right? Yeah? Or is it more likely you cannot imagine significantly giving more than you already do? Could you imagine, most of you got back your charitable receipts from different places that you donated to. Can you imagine doubling that amount this upcoming year? I don't know how I'd make that work. How about even 50% more? Like in 2018, you gave $1,000 to charity. This year, give $1,500. Which is easier? Spending on your home, your vacations, your, or giving it away? You will spend most easily on what is most important to you. You will spend most easily on what you value most and think you must have. But as a result, money is actually a surface idol that reveals deeper sources of trust and worship. So as an example, I was just talking about people who spend money. Why might somebody spend a lot of money? Why might they be lavish, freely spending? It is something they must have, something they value and are after that they think money will get them. So you may really love pleasure and comfort, and so you will spend money on food and wine and hotels and and the thread count sheets and the leather chairs and, and all the things that luxury and pleasure can buy you. And if pleasure is your ultimate value, you will spend money freely there. But another person might spend lavishly for a totally other reason. They might spend in order to build up their house, in order to to eat out, because they want to be around people and they want the people to approve of them, to accept them. So the people need to come into their house and say, oh, I like you. They want to go out with those people and be generous and buy them meals. They want to be accepted and approved of, and they will use money to gain that acceptance and approval. Another person might not care anything about approval or pleasure, They might use their money to enter into social circles so they can have influence in greater and greater levels of social circles because they want power. So the reason why a person might be lavish and free spending is because they want pleasure, ultimately, or approval, or power. Money is just a means to get to the heaven that they are after. And in this sense, money becomes a functional savior in our lives. Yes, you trust Jesus. I trust Jesus with my eternal salvation. 
but in my day-to-day heavenly happiness, I've got Visa to cover that. And those of you who are not free spenders, don't feel so smug. Why might a person save and invest and be very frugal? You know, you're proud of your financial discipline. You look down on the lavish. You don't spend on hotels and new cars and TVs. You're driving the same Honda you've had for 20 years, the same clothes you've had for 30, we know. You're very proud of it. And you look down on those who spend lavishly, who can't control their bank accounts the way you can. But what are you thinking internally, underneath, if you really dug down? You think, if I have this amount in my bank account, if I have this amount in my 401k, this amount invested, then I'll be okay. Then even if I lose my job or my health declines, then I'll be okay. I'll be safe because I've saved this much away and I learned how to live more frugally. You don't value pleasure, clearly. You're not seeking approval or power. You value security, control. You use money not to get to heaven, but to avoid hell, having your greatest fears realized. Money will stave off that hell. And you know, whether you have a lot or not doesn't matter. Even if you have very little, money can still be an idol in your life because you envy those who have more. You graduated from the same school as they did, but they're doing so much better. Why? You judge their lifestyle or judge yourself for not accomplishing and getting to where they are. Money for the poor can be just as much an idol in your life as it can for the rich. I would suggest that the question is not, does money have a hold on my heart? But how? How does it do so for me? And to what extent am I under its power? In other words, if we're going to do the science fair project, we should assume our hypothesis, our working hypothesis, should be money is one of my functional saviors. And I am probably blind to its hold on my heart. What was Solomon's discovery? What did he conclude from his science fair project, his scientific study of wealth and pleasure, all the palaces and gardens and wine and concerts and concubines, all the success, all that he'd built, all that he'd enjoyed. He says in verse 11, all is vanity, a striving after the wind, nothing gained under the sun. It is meaningless, it is useless, It does not give you purpose. If you get it all, everything you've ever dreamed of, you will not be satisfied. And we know this. We know this intuitively. Like, we know money can't save us, can't give us all we want, but we cannot stop our basic love and trust of money. Why? Because of blindness and fear. Do you know that people will admit all sorts of sins and vices, but nobody admits that they are greedy and materialist? I have a temper problem. I struggle with lust. 
I, I have bitterness against. I, nobody says, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty greedy. I'm battling this addiction to materialism. I struggle with socking it all away and not trusting God. And part of this is because we always know somebody who's richer and greedier than we are. Blindness and fear. There's something that we cannot live without. Power, approval, security, our $5 latte. We cannot live without it. And we know that money can give us that. And we feel like if we don't have that, whatever that is, life's not worth living. I'm a nobody. Ecclesiastes is a book that's part of the Old Testament, and it's called wisdom literature. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, the Psalms themselves, Ecclesiastes, Job, they're all wisdom literature. If you read through what they say about money and wealth, what they say is actually money and wealth is a good thing. It is a blessing from God. But it has its limits. That would be how I would summarize wisdom literature's take on money and wealth. It is a good thing if you have it, but it has its limits. And you know what the limits of money are? Death. Everyone dies and they can take nothing with them. And money will not keep death from you. Solomon concludes it in verse 15 of chapter five of Ecclesiastes. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing of his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It's the same thing that Job says when everything is taken away from him. Naked I came, naked I will return. You cannot take it with you. It cannot save you. Don't seek your meaning in your wealth. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the commentators noted that Solomon's life was built recreating Eden. He was trying to recreate Eden, the Garden of Eden, like all the pleasures, all the joys, everything is in front of you. When Adam and Eve are in Eden, in the garden, they are naked. Same thing that Solomon's talking about here. Nakedness is not just you have no clothes on. It means open, nothing to hide. And it means vulnerable, defenseless. In the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They were open and hid nothing. They were vulnerable and had no fears. They were vulnerable and they were safe. But because sin enters in, they try to cover themselves, right, with fig leaves. Now they're naked and ashamed. Now they're naked and afraid. Now they're naked and trying to protect themselves. Now they're vulnerable and not okay. And since that time, we have lived our lives trying to cover our nakedness our vulnerability, and we use money to do that. We turn to it as a source of salvation. We turn to our money to give me what I really want, what will make me happy, what will make me feel like I matter, or for security. Money will protect me from that worst thing happening, from not having 
But shopping and investments and vacations, all that money can give you cannot save you. It cannot keep you secure. It is a very small fig leaf that cannot cover your nakedness. But Jesus can. Think about Jesus' life and death. Jesus was stripped naked. That's how you were crucified, stripped naked, bound and beaten, strung up and crucified, nailed to a cross, his arms wide open, as vulnerable and defenseless as you can be. But he's the creator and Lord of the universe. The most powerful thing there is. God the creator became weak, naked, vulnerable, killable. To cover, to cover your shame. To give you his love and assurance and acceptance. To make you secure and safe forever. What do you look to besides Jesus to cover your nakedness? Do you look to money or do you look to cross? Money or the cross to cover your nakedness? The better question is this, though. How? How do you seek your covering in your money and wealth? And to what extent Is money a functional savior in your life? Or maybe even the true Lord? Jesus alone will cover your shame. Jesus alone will protect you from what really can harm you. Jesus alone will get you the heaven you truly are after. Let's pray. God, our Father, you sent your Son to take away our shame and fear. We don't need the things we pursue so often. Help us, Lord, to look at the wealth that you have given us as a gift from you and not as our own salvation. May we open-handedly entrust all that we have in our own lives to you and put our trust fully in the one who came for us. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.